Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I'm your host, Eric Fleming. Um, so we really haven't talked about the elections that just happened. Well, we kind of mentioned a little bit as far as like implications with the National Democratic Party, but this whole election year has revealed some things that you may have paid attention to locally, but did not see or may not have seen a national trend. Everybody has been really focusing in on the division within the Republican Party between those who are loyal to the former president and those who want to go back to, I guess, for lack of a better definition, the Goldwater Reagan uh, Republican Party. And, and I've talked about this in the past that the the desire for power, the desire for control, especially of the White House, led to those on the Goldwater Reagan side reaching in and tapping into people who are now aligned with Trump, right? And then Trump emerged, and so they've lost those voters. And so now there's a battle within the Republican Party to reclaim the soul of it, I guess. And even to the point where Republicans have, like in the presidential election, some key Republicans endorse the Democratic nominee over the Republican nominee. Um, in certain elections, especially dealing with Congress, maybe the governorship in certain states and the presidency. And there are black people that are in the middle of that, but most of the black people that have emerged to prominence as of late are pretty much in the Trump camp. Um, and there may be some historic reasons for that. Um, you, you, but there's a division within the black Republicans. There are those Republicans who never left generations of black families who basically were able to vote and supported the Republican party because that was a party of Abraham Lincoln. And they're considered the old guard, the black and tan, whatever you want to call them, descendants of those those politicians. And a lot of them are not in the Trump camp, but then there's not really a whole lot of them either. It seems as though that the new group uh, the younger Republicans that are coming of age are aligning with Trump more so as a, uh, what's the term I want to use? Um, as a backlash to years of Democratic leadership that they view as taking the black vote for granted and not giving us what we really need. And they have a more conservative approach toward government spending and government action. But Donald Trump gave them a voice. And even though it's mixed in with people that, <coughs> excuse me, that 
are not really sensitive or really do not like black people or people of color in a whole, right? This coalition is there. And it's obviously a coalition of convenience for the those black conservatives. And uh, they'll even go to the point and say that those of us who highlight those Trump supporters who are racist are basically trying to paint an unfair picture. But we've talked about that before. What we really haven't talked about or what we haven't talked about a lot is that same division within the Blacks and the Democrat Party, where most of the Black political base is. And it's really three factions. It, it's two ideologies, but it's um, three different directions. That makes any sense. There's always an old guard. There's always those who uh, whenever you have divisions politically, there's always an old guard that wants to keep things the way they are, that wants to continue to dictate politics the way they were. And, you know, just like we talked about Congress as a whole being trying to still politic like they did in the 80s in dealing with issues of today, you could make that argument about the party in general, the Democratic Party. And since they're the party in charge of government right now, you see the connection, right? That um, this was a party that got tough in the eight, had to get tough in the 80s after getting beat a lot. And then they reemerged in the 90s with Bill Clinton with more of a centrist viewpoint. And there's always been that more liberal wing of the party that kind of felt vindicated when Barack Obama got elected. But to be honest, Obama was more in line with the centrist uh, political view as a lot of us that serves as Democratic elected officials as opposed to the more liberal or radical agenda of some members of the party. Um, even to the point where a lot of the radical members just fortified the Green Party, uh, which came into prominence when Ralph Nader got nominated and ran for president. And many people feel cost uh, Al Gore his shot at being president. And in 2016, even when you talk about Jill Stein, Dr. Stein, uh, as a Green Party nominee, she was considered a villain too. Um, even though her numbers were not as consequential maybe uh, as Ralph Nader, because Ralph Nader was more for lack of a better term in comparing two individuals credible then Dr. Stein, uh, he had been in the national landscape prior to him running uh, as a consumer advocate, and therefore he had some credibility. And he had some victories being a consumer advocate. So he had more of an impact in the 2000 election than Jill Stein in 2016, but nevertheless. It was really the real impactful person in 2016 and even in 2020 turned out to be an independent senator from Vermont named Bernie Sanders, who has always voted with or caucused with the Democrats in the United States Senate since he served there. But he is fiercely independent and he's fiercely more progressive in his mindset. Um, at least as how he identifies himself 
um, in his mindset toward how government should respond. And because the Democratic Party would embrace a progressive more so than a conservative, he has had some victories along with others. Um, throughout political history, especially since the 1980s, which is where is the point of reference I want to put a pin on as far as our dynamics, right? Our current dynamics. And so out of his political campaigns for president, a movement has evolved and a lot of people who have been elected officials who are currently elected officials or aspire to be elected officials in the democratic party have embraced him. Uh, people that I've known for a long time, like Nina Turner and Ben jealous and Keith Ellison are like kind of the stars of that, uh, movement, especially in the African-American community. And there have, of course, been local people, uh, wherever you're from, that uh, have uh, lined up with that. And it's a formidable force when you look at the squad. Uh, those members of the squad in Congress, those women of color that serve in the House, uh, they were all products of that Bernie Sanders progressive movement, um, their elections, I should say. So there is a real rift. And of course, in the black community, uh, that rift has been there. Um, it goes all the way back to prior to the 80s, it goes all the way back to the 60s as the dynamics were changing as legislation had passed with civil rights and voting rights. Now the focus was changing to more of a black power movement with the younger people coming in and there was an old guard that Dr. King represented and John Lewis and those guys, even though John was more of the same age as Stokely Carmichael and, and the black power group, John was aligned with the old guard because he had been in leadership during probably the most turbulent time. And I say turbulent in the sense that more activity was happening. That's when the legislation actually came forward uh, um, to get voting rights and civil rights passed. And so that, of course, that division has spilled over into now, some 50, almost 60 years later. And that division, I've never looked at as being bad, but it's something that we need to acknowledge and something that we need to work through and on. It has never really had an impact on turnout. Unlike on the Republican side, once one group really wasn't feeling the person that was representing the party on the other side. They just didn't come and, and Democrats got surprising victories because of that. Or they turned on each other so bad. In the black community, politics gets personal and it never should. And I've done a whole podcast about why. Um, but in essence, it's based off of these ideologies. So we've always had in the black community a more radical element toward our self-determination and our uh, political advancement. 
And so because most of us are in the Democratic Party, that has spilled over into the party, um, especially in districts. So this summer, we saw that happen. Um, where the aforementioned Nina Turner, who was a state senator during the time in Ohio, during the time I was in the legislature in Mississippi, uh, who had actually been the spokesperson for Bernie Sanders when he ran for president last time. And had been a very vocal supporter, had been on all the talk shows and everything. She wanted to replace Marcia Fudge in Congressional District 11 in Ohio, which is kind of a historic black district in America, right? Kind of like the first district in Chicago. Um, the 11th district has produced black leadership um, from Lou, Louis Stokes to uh, Stephanie Tubbs, Jones to Marcia Fudge, and now Ms. Brown steps into that mantle, but Nina Turner ran for that seat as well. And she plans to run again in 2022. But Brown, who was on the Cayuga County Council, uh, and was the chair of the party for Cayuga County, a younger woman, um, put her name out there and it was a total of about nine people, right? Including some people that had ran against Congresswoman Fudge in the primaries before. And the lady that Brown beat, beat the Republican that she beat uh, had just ran against Fudge in the 2020 election. Um, and Brown was perceived as more of a centrist Democrat, more of an old guard Democrat, even though she's younger than uh, Senator Turner. And there was a lot of money involved. Whereas Senator Turner was able to get the Bernie Sanders network to work and even Senator Sanders showed up campaign for Brown was able to get money and support from the Congressional Black Caucus, which is very, very unusual. And uh, but she got money from Republicans and she got money from pro-Israel groups, which I thought was kind of interesting. But that district makeup is primarily people of Jewish faith and black folk. So that pro-Israel influence made a difference. And of course, Stacey and Turner was all about, you know, defunding the police and all the other things that have uh, come out um, of the more radical agenda. And there's a reason why I singled that one out over other, other issues, right? Because mostly they agreed on infrastructure development and you know pushing that through and pushing uh, Voting Rights Act, John Lewis uh, Act through. Um, but the Freedom to Vote Act, they're, they're all in favor of that and to build better build back better, they're, they're in agreement for the most part on those. Um, but there were differences in style. And uh, with nine candidates running, Brown got over 50% of the vote. Now, Senator Turner got over 40. It was relatively close. But the other candidates didn't garner enough support to force a runoff. So Miss um, Brown won, and of course she then beat Miss Gore, and she got in. 
So it's interesting that in that particular district with the history that Senator Turner had, the credibility that she had as compared to Ms. Brown. And Ms. Brown, like you said, like I said, was not a novice. She had been elected. She was currently serving and she was currently serving as the chair of the party. So she had a lot of leverage herself. But a lot of people thought that Senator Turner was going to win. And uh, the national pundits. But the dynamics of Cuyahoga County, and I guess there's another county summit or something like that that's right attached to it that is in that district that swayed the election in the Browns' favor. Once she got that nomination free and clear without having a runoff, it was pretty much a given that she was going to be the next congressperson. So there were a lot of factors in the play to really not really say if you're a true political scientist to really hash out how the difference between the more progressive or radical black activists uh, were defeated by the old guard in the sense that on ideology, it was more money and personability, uh, personality, I should say, persuadability and personality, that Brown was more personable, I think, than Turner. But as we get into it a little more, um, we look at some other cities that, you know, elections played a part in and, and just see and just kind of be more of a, a gauge, I guess. Um, one other, one other dynamic because and we'll, we'll get into this more on the other side, but there were some interesting results um, that will play into more of what, we, what we're discussing today. And we'll, we'll get into all that on the other side. All right, and so we're back. So I wanted to kind of finish that thought about some other elections. Because, and I had mentioned and I highlighted defunding police because a lot of the Democratic pundits and consultants were saying that that phrase had a major impact on House seats being lost by Democrats. Um, and even though Biden was strong enough to win the presidential election, they feel that it hurt him, that it should have been a more lopsided election. And that, I, I don't agree with that. Um, I think these were movements that were put out there to start a discussion about how communities are going to be safe, not from just a criminal element, but from the actual group of people that's supposed to be protecting us from the criminal element, right? Law enforcement. And even though there may have been a number of people who took that literally, um, for those of us who have dealt with budgets and have dealt with the pragmatics of governing society, um, that was never going to happen, right? Or so, 
was a general conjecture. However, there were at least a couple of major cities, Minneapolis and Seattle, where that actual subject was on the ballot. There were actually referendums suggesting that the police be defunded. And in those cities, which are primarily democratic strongholds, and where even though the black population is not that big, the they're still strong democratic cities as far as government and policy and even attitude, right? Because you can tell a city that has a democratic attitude and a city that does not, that has a Republican attitude. You can, you can tell it. And that's how bad the divide is, right? Nonetheless, those two cities actually had defunding the police referendums on the ballot, and both of them lost in both cities. Minneapolis is highlighted because, of course, that's where George Floyd was murdered by the police. And then Seattle was basically where the anti-police folks kind of took over a part of the city, right? And there was a lot of mistakes that were done all throughout that scenario. And, And the fact that Seattle is back functioning again is great news because that period uh, was really, really crazy. Uh, Police weren't listening to the mayor. Police chief was making mistakes as far as public relations and decisions by areas to patrol. It It was a mess. Out of that came a referendum, but the majority of the citizens in Seattle uh, where progressive ideas like that can actually get validation got defeated because there's an overall sense, and especially when they polled African-Americans in those two cities specifically, is that we don't the citizen says we said we want and then, and that's the trend that's national we want police involved in protecting our neighborhoods we want police to be involved in solving crimes we do not want police harassing us and killing us you don't need to have both. You can effectively police an area without oppressing people. And that was the message that the black communities in those particular cities and really nationwide have been trying to convey. And what the biggest concern has been, which really kind of led to the language of defunding the police, was the ability for police departments now to get tanks and other items from the Department of Defense at discounted prices. Um, And and the over-militarization of the police as what people would look at. Is there really a need for us to have tanks and all those other things, right? But you know, most of the technology that does emerge and does filter to law enforcement basically has been military tested. So it's kind of a dichotomy there, but the public perception of seeing a tank going rolling down downtown Ferguson, Missouri, wasn't cool because there are people that remember tanks rolling down, makeshift tanks that were made rolling down Jackson, Mississippi streets. And of course, Los Angeles, when early on and they, you know, built the SWAT team legacy and all that, and they had everything, you know, they had tanks, they had a jet plane, they, they got it all, right? So it's never been a positive image 
And many of us are of a generation that despite the Chinese government's best efforts, we remember the tanks rolling on Tiananmen Square and watching that young man trying to stop the tanks by himself. And we just kept saying, we don't want ever want that to happen here. And of course, kind of did. Um, so it's never been in the mindset of the black community that we don't want police. What has been in the mindset of the black community is that we don't want oppressive police officers. We don't want people in uniform with weapons terrorizing the very citizens they're supposed to protect. Even to the point of killing them. We don't want that. And that seems like a very simple request, but it seems like it's really hard for a lot of leadership in law enforcement to grasp. Hence, protests and movements. So if I'm in the law enforcement, if, if, if I'm a leader in the law enforcement community, I'm looking at what happened in Seattle and Minnesota this past election day and saying, okay, so black people don't totally hate the police, but there's some work to be done because it wasn't like it was 90 percent of the people voting against it either. It was rather close. It's like 55, 45, I think, in both cases, or right around there. So there's sentiment out there that needs to be addressed. And that's been part of the issue with the, the split, with the more radical. Now, I say there's three tiers. So let's go to Des Moines, Iowa, right? Which is Iowa in general. I forget where there's a black mayor in Iowa. He got reelected, by the way. And those who were opposed to him tried to paint him because he was black as anti-police. Which really wasn't the case since he was the mayor already. You know, now is he trying to get the police to have a better relationship with the community? Absolutely. But, you know, to try to paint the actual current mayor, not somebody running for mayor, but the current mayor as anti-police was kind of a stretch and didn't work. But in Des Moines, Iowa, there is a black woman who is now on the city council in Des Moines. Never had a black woman before on the council. I don't think they've had anybody black on the council, but definitely not a black woman. And she now is the youngest person. I think she's in her thirties. So she's now the youngest person under Des Moines city council, but she campaigned on defunding the police. And she won against a incumbent. So of all the places that you would think that would not work, that kind of agenda wouldn't be successful, she won. And so it just all depends on the makeup of the constituent base and how you sell the message. Because she, from what I understand, has been an activist for years, ever since her college days. She has been out there in the forefront. She's been one of those black voices that have been out there in, in the city. And she got rewarded for that, in a sense, because she wanted to serve on the city council and the people put her on. But there's no denying her position and her viewpoint on how the police in Des Moines operates. But she won. Right. And then you, you're seeing dynamics take place where a similar situation in South Fulton, Georgia is about to happen to what we saw with Brown and Turner in Ohio, where you have the incumbent mayor who's been an entrenched politician who was actually part of the 
the clique, if you will, the Morehouse group, all that stuff, running against a young man who basically has cut his teeth through the Bernie Sanders movement. And they're in a runoff. So it'd be interesting to see in a city that is heavily black, very little with no white influence at all in the politics, how that dynamic is going to play out because you have a significant population of people who are marginalized in the system and you have a very significant population of people who have been prosperous in the system living in the same city. And so it'll be interesting to see how those crossovers happen because a lot of times marginalized citizens tend to go for stability, believe it or not, and successful, daring (laughs) communities tend to go for new ideas. We'll see how that goes, right? Because people, regardless of their level of status economically, are still people. And they still have thought processes and whatever has shaped their political thought processes determines how they vote and who they vote for. Right? Now, in a fight against a Republican, everybody would be united in that particular city. But internally, there's that gap. Right? And so... In the bigger city of Atlanta, there's also that matchup, right? Where you have a member of the city council who's considered a progressive against a member of the city council who is part of the establishment or has positioned herself to be part of the establishment. She, both of them beat the entrenched established candidate to get to that point. So now there's a battle to try to curry favor with the establishment in a sense and try to convince the city of Atlanta voters that um, their approach is going to be different. Whereas the council president has gone to traditional route of public safety and stability and all that. And, the challenge, well, the other candidate, the council member, has put together a plan where, yeah, we can do those things, but we can do them a little different, right? We don't have to go the traditional route to do it, you know? It's like well, one candidate is saying, well, we just need more police officers. The other candidate is saying, yeah, we might need some more police officers, but we probably need more streetlights too, right? So those those dynamics that are happening. Now, the reason why I say there's three groups divided amongst, because the progressives are divided amongst by age. There are those older progressives who have been fighting the battle who, for the most part, are engaged, but not really because they have been fighting the system for so long that they really could care less. And they mount write-in campaigns and they, you know, they might get behind referendums, but they're not going to get behind candidates. And then there's the younger people who are looking at, we've got to go in there and change it. If, if, If we can't be disengaged, we have to run. And so now you're having more young activists actually considering running as opposed to like when I was their age, people were trying to discourage us from being in the process altogether because it hadn't worked up until that point. And there were a number of my friends that became active in groups that disengaged, right? And then eventually within a decade later, those organizations were heavily involved in politics 
right? Because there was a need and because there were younger people getting more and more active and, and, and looking at strategy they said, we've got to be inside to change it. We can't just keep being outside. We've got to understand what's going on, right? And that's the dynamic that's really happening now, that the younger people are really, really open to actively running and participating in the process. Even if they're not running or they don't have a candidate, they usually have an issue that they can rally around and get petitions signed and, and you know, get referendums on ballots and vote for them. And the beauty of that is that they are the older people, they're pulling them back in as each generation of, of young progressives, radicals, whatever you want to call them, gets involved, they're keeping the older ones in line. And so, but that's a fight to convince the older progressives and radicals that change can't happen in this process. You've got to stay with it. We believe in it. You taught us some of it. Why can't we do what we're doing in the street in the buildings of power, right? And that's a youth-led movement. And so when you see people in their 30s becoming mayors and congressional leaders and all that, in African-American communities, that's kind of the dynamic that's happening. And it's really a trend that should always happen, but it doesn't because leadership transition is revolutionary instead of evolutionary in the black community. Uh, younger people always have to fight the establishment to get in instead of being tutored or mentored by that. And, and, and black people are doing better now in the political realm, as far as mentoring leadership and encouraging people to be involved than they used to. And when I say they, I'm talking about those who were given the opportunity to amass political power. Um, there are some that still don't buy into that. <laughs> and that's fine because they're, those numbers are dwindling, but those people who came in and now they're becoming the elder statesmen, they understand that they have to bring in people, they have to show people the process, they have to get people to buy into it. And it seems to be working because a lot of the dynamics, you know, a lot of the people running for these positions, you know, two of the people that I mentioned in the Georgia races, they're in their early 40s, late 30s, right? Ms. Brown is in her mid 40s. And you're seeing people of color, I think the new mayor of Boston, she's like in her late 30s, mid 40s, something like that. She may even be a little older, but you know, they're younger people taking over these these cities and, and getting involved in the process and getting elected to prominent positions in areas where that dy dynamic needs to happen, right? Because, you know, a lot of the people that are considered the elder statespersons were the immediate byproduct of the Voting Rights Act. And now they've almost come full circle in their political experience that they're fighting for more voting rights, even though voting rights gave them the opportunity to serve. And now they've got to ex extend and expand it to protect the representation that they fought so hard to get. Um, and so that's why now you've got to have younger people in the process to push it.
So I say all that to say the truth that has come out in these 2021 elections, that really people who have studied this have always understood and have tried to articulate it, is that the black vote has never been, nor will it ever be monolithic, except for one key characteristic, betterment. I don't care if you're talking to the most conservative black Republican or the most liberal radical black Democrat, everything that they talk about is geared toward the betterment of black people in the United States. How they joan on each other and ridicule and rip each other apart, that's a whole nother conversation, right? But the reality is, is that if you really listen to most of the black political people that are out there on both sides, that's what they're saying. Whether it's a conservative approach or a liberal approach. And this is something that I've constantly harped on on this podcast. That we as voters have to be pragmatic in figuring out which approach at which time is best for us. Do we need the more conservative approach during this stretch? Do we need to be bold and emboldened, right? The difference between different factions is that they believe their side is should always win, right? Their thoughts should always prevail. And that's never the case in a successful society. It's always been a balance. Uh, a compromise, if you will. And the way that politics is shaking out now, compromise is turning out to be a dirty word. But the reality is, is that in order for humans to move forward, especially those of us of the African-American uh, group, that we have to have a balance. You have to push where we need to per push and we need to stand pat when we need to stand pat. It's just like the Kenny Rogers song. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run, right? You've, you, we've, we've got to continue to get smarter. Our political efficacy has to continue to be raised in order to get and achieve what we want, which is the ultimate respect that we deserve as citizens of this nation. And the truth of the matter is, is that we are seeing those, those fights develop in, in both the Republican and the Democratic side amongst African-American political leadership. And those fights are not necessarily bad things. If we don't get paralyzed in the fighting and we listen to the debate, we can find the solutions within the, the, the debates and the discussions. We can find that common ground and that strategy for that time, right? And I'm encouraged amidst all this kind of fog and funk that's going on in the national politics, I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing in the black community and how tactical and how intelligent we are as voters in deciding what's best for our future. And regardless of who wins these runoffs, regardless of, you know, a lot of these, uh, elections and even in 2022, what I want political scientists and I want people observing politics to understand is that the black community is getting smarter and they're gauging their decisions based on what's best for them and their communities immediately. And hopefully it'll translate to a conglomeration of national leaders 
that can really set a tone and really change the game in a whole different positive direction. I feel that. I feel that's coming. I feel that, you know, even though I know people who have lost elections, who I think are good people, I don't feel bad and about it, them losing per se, because the people made that decision. And I don't think people were, I don't think people are as, in the black community are as bamboozled as one would try to perceive. I think, I think we're, we're in a good place and we're in a, we can be in a better place if we continue to build on that momentum and that knowledge and that activism. Um, So that's really what I wanted to talk about today. I just, I really, I, I really hope that it, the message that you get from this is that what we saw this election cycle and what we are continuing to see is some people are still running, um, is a more positive thing. And there's hope on the horizon and that as long as we continue to stay engaged, as we continue to stay educated about not only issues, but what actually people are standing for and making conscious decisions about which way we should go, which is whether it's a micro for your community or a macro as far as the nation, let's stay with that. Let's not get caught up in that funk and that fog that people are doing. Let's, let's cut through the fog and get people in positions so that the wheels can continue to move until next time.